Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I apologize if anyone was waiting for this episode to come out when it usually does, which is around midnight Eastern time on Tuesday, the 28th. And there was a bit of a behind the scenes issue. It was my issue. Full disclosure, I recorded this interview with Jared Price about two weeks ago before I went to NRF Cleveland or NRF Protecting Cleveland. And I still swear that I recorded an introduction. I can almost remember some of the pieces that I did for that. I swear I did, but I can't find it anywhere on my computer. And so I take the bullet for this one. My poor editor is on standby to add this to the interview and get it out as soon as possible. But I also know there are a lot of you that listen to these episodes a few days or weeks afterwards as well. So you're probably like, uh, I don't care. But also if you're wondering why I sound maybe a little more baritone than usual, it's because I woke up about 20 minutes ago. But in all honesty, I have been looking forward to releasing this interview since Jared and I had this conversation. I know how much of a continual issue gift card fraud is, especially online gift card fraud. However, those of you with in-store locations and big brand gift cards have seen a huge uptick in elder abuse and elder fraud in victim-assisted scams targeting gift cards in stores. We're going to talk about both of those topics today in a way that, quite honestly, I haven't really heard. Now, granted, I don't go to every session at every fraud conference, but I have not heard this much great information, comprehensive information, advice, and best practices that you can implement soon to prevent gift card fraud online and in-store. Jared Price has headed up Fraud at Income for several years. He's now the Director of Fraud Prevention at Income. Income processes gift cards. They process private label gift cards for some of the biggest brands in the world. They also process card brand gift cards, such as American Express prepaids and Visa gift cards or Visa prepaids and MasterCard prepaids, etc. So all Jared knows is gift card fraud, and he knows it so well. In fact, when I was at NRF this last week, I was talking to a large retailer and mentioned that this episode was coming out today. And the large retailer said, oh man, we used to use Incom and I miss the fraud rates. And I also miss the high approvals. Of course, we all know that just because the fraud team misses a provider or a vendor doesn't always mean that that's what the business is going to decide because there's so many other factors. But I thought that was just really good validation that Jared and his team know what they're doing. They're doing a really good job in one of the hardest spaces. And gift card fraud has only gotten worse over the last few years. And honestly, even in the last few months, and I've talked about it previously, between the tightening of regulations on cryptocurrency and the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the issues they have in wanting untraceable or just the demand for untraceable currency of any kind to be able to monetize and transfer over is super high. So untraceable anonymous gift cards are again becoming a popular item with online fraud. They never stopped, but they're even more than usual. So a couple of the things that Jared and I are going to talk about on today's episode, some of the most popular methods of fraud targeting online gift card fraud and in-store gift card fraud, as well as important details to understand about your company's specific gift card fraud problems and actionable best practices and strategy suggestions. I'm not joking. Like, I think this you'll be taking notes. <laughs> Ways to assess the performance of a current process or technology solution and when to know it may be time to increase resources or add to your risk stack. These are all things that whether you're a merchant or a vendor, you care about learning. But especially for those of you on the front lines, I think you'll especially enjoy this episode. And you'll hear us say it in just a minute, but we literally talked for an hour before and a half an hour after we recorded. And I'm so sorry I didn't record all of that. Also, you're welcome because I'm sure it was all over the place because as we mentioned, we both have ADD. Maybe it's undiagnosed, maybe it's not, whatever, but I'm almost positive we do. 
Also, one more quick note, only because I am doing this now. I did put up a poll on LinkedIn. Jared and I referenced this. He really was curious to know what the overlap is of fraud fighters and ADD and ADHD. And I put up a poll yesterday on LinkedIn and already has over 100 responses. And it's super fascinating. So I promise to provide a little bit of information on that on next Thursday's episode. Not just what the results were of the poll, but also why I think that matters and why I think solution providers of all things should understand this about fraud fighters. Okay, that is it for my intro. I'm going to stop talking so you can listen to Jared and my dog needs a walk this morning. But I am always so grateful that you listen. I can't wait for you to listen in on this conversation and to hear what you think about it. And I will talk to you more next week. Fraudology has its first returning sponsor, and I couldn't be more excited about that. I'm talking about Seon. I've talked about them before. If you haven't had an opportunity to learn more about Seon, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, we're going to be talking about them more over the next several weeks. Two, you can go to episode 70, where I interviewed co-founders Tamash and Benz to learn about their story, why they thought that the world needed another fraud product or products, because they have a couple options. Uh, You can also go to their website at seon.io. Welcome to Fraudology, Jared. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. I'm laughing because we've actually been talking for the last hour and a half. (laughs) So it's kind of weird for me to say welcome when we've already been chatting. And I am sorry to my listeners that they missed out on. Wonderful conversation. Conversations between (laughs) two fraud fighters that have ADHD. And so it was like lots of half topics. (laughs) Half of them were fraud related, but I am really glad you're here. I've wanted you to come on the podcast for a while and between my schedule and your schedule and all the schedules, but we made time and I'm so glad we did, not just because of where you work now and the knowledge you have there, but you've been in fraud for a long time. And any of us that have done that, we've definitely seen a lot, done a lot, have lots of experiences and expertise. So there's a lot that can be learned. Sure. And it's a pleasure to be here and really look forward to talking. So... Let's start kind of at the very beginning. How, I'd love to know how you got started in online fraud prevention and, and what's your favorite part of the industry? Yeah, so I think like so many of us, right, just kind of fell into it. I was actually, my pre-fraud background was actually in the steel detailing. So kind of like an entry-level engineering type position and just counting rivets and bolts and placing holes and drawing diagrams and, and AutoCAD way back in the day. And had a family friend that was actually working at Income at the time and they were looking for help. And so I came on as one of the, I was probably the fifth or sixth full-time fraud person coming on board at the time. And yeah, the rest is largely history. So started there and been at Income pretty much ever since. As far as what I love about fraud, it really comes down to problem solving. So I've always found myself stuck kind of between engineering and accounting and business and just theoretical problem solving. And, and that's really what I love about fraud is just there's, there's always a problem that needs to be addressed. There's always a new risk popping up and half the job is trying to figure out where they're going to hit you before they even hit you. So it's this constant exercise of just thinking about the future and while still having to pay attention to today. Absolutely. I have to say, I mean, you're 100% right that none of us start out in fraud or even knowing it was a thing, but you are by far the first person I've ever talked to who was in steel detailing before. <laughs> it's like customer service or finance or something like that. But that is a new one. Yeah, no, I pulled it. I pulled a straight 180 for sure. So, which actually, and you know, it's funny. It really wasn't that much of a 180 because I, I found there's so much what I did there that applied. So, I was, believe it or not, I Problem was not solving, most, thinking outside. I was the box, not the most detail oriented person before that job. So, you know, spending two years just counting rivets and bolts uh, did me a lot of good. (laughs) Wow. And then you went from like very mundane, consistent, you knew what was going to happen every day at work to the complete opposite. But look at which one you've made a career. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, and so just kind of moving on from there, income is really a unique company as far as structure and offerings. And a lot of people probably haven't mm-hmm. heard of your company, but they've definitely heard of products that you either own or provide service for, et cetera. Can you yep. provide, and I know you do this often, but the high level <laughs> overview of the company? Yeah. So I think 
for those who know of income and, and we are very much on the back end company where a lot of people that even work at the retailers that we're involved with don't necessarily know of our existence, right? The core of our business is definitely gift cards. That's what people usually know us for is either our vanilla gift card brand where we're doing Visa, MasterCard gift cards or our act facilitating the activation of third-party gift cards. That's our core business, but we also go a lot further than that. And really, I think the best way to kind of summarize what income is, is we're a payment tech company. And we really focus on solving problems for consumers and it ranges everywhere from toll and transit cards, GPR cards, which are kind of the general purpose reloadable cards, work a lot like debit cards with associated DD8 accounts, everything else. Healthcare solutions, lottery and gaming type solutions are on the rise. Bill pay services, really anytime money's moving anywhere and there's any friction involved there, our objective is to help with a single integration, help our retailers and help our customers kind of find each other and get what they want to go from point A to point B and, and kind of get it there. So. So that's a really good high level example. And I think that's important or explanation, but, and I don't think you can say specific brands, but just even like just going down Mm -hmm. a little, depending on how you look at it, either higher up or a little bit more (laughs) detail, just for context purposes for the next Mm -hmm. little bit we're going to talk about. I know that you work on private label gift cards for other merchants and, and retailers. Your company provides all the services, but you, of course, are looking at the fraud on those private label gift cards. You also have portfolios of card brand prepaid cards that are loadable and and all that maybe are purchased in a grocery store or online. Can you talk a little bit more about like like the specific products that you oversee the fraud for without obviously names or anything that's going to get either of us in trouble? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a few different ways to kind of think of it, right? So there's the processing of the cards themselves. We have some private labels. We have our open loop gift cards where we process directly. That's we're managing the actual from the swipe of the card to the movement of the money from the back end account over to the retailer who's getting the funds, whatever the case may be. We've got that perspective of it where we kind of handle the transaction monitoring fraud of watching for fraudulent takeovers of the account itself, people skimming cards, all that good stuff. Kind of your typical quote unquote credit card fraud, if you will. Then you've also got the activation side of it. And on the activation side, it kind of scopes out a little bit, right? So we've got where the retailers are utilizing us to activate cards. They may not be our cards for processing, right? So we may be reaching out to the other processors of the world to flip those cards on. And so we're watching for their activation fraud, watching for any of the schemes that are running through their brick and mortar stores or their e-commerce online stores through our virtual terminals and just kind of sanity checking that. And then... Above that, even, we've got where we are directly selling to consumers, right? So we've got our own e-commerce sites. We're the merchant, we're the terminal, we're the processor, we're kind of everything all together. And we get to see the entire ecosystem from start to finish. And I think that's really where a lot of times things kind of really come into focus. And we're able to take those learnings from our e-commerce sites and really apply them to best practices that we can feed down to our retailers to help them do better as well when they're selling cards. And now everyone understands why I wanted to talk to you so much. <laughs> and like I said, even before this last hour and a half, I knew that you knew a lot about a lot, not just gift cards, not just that, but this is obviously a painful area of business for yep. online retailers. And especially when whatever that percentage is, whether it's 90 or 75 or whatever of their business is in physical goods, or maybe it's digital goods, but they're consumables and they're, it's within their ecosystem, right? So it's online gaming. They can see how it's used and everything else or event tickets or whatever. So they know that that's their core competency when it comes to fraud prevention. And then you've got this other thing that is essentially digital currency that's untraceable in a lot of cases. And especially with more regulation on crypto, et cetera. I know a lot more people are seeing some shady stuff on the gift cards from money laundering to account takeovers to um, you name it. Right. And so that was really the first reason I wanted to have you on because I know that there's a lot of things that other merchants can learn from you. So we'll kind of break it up into pieces. Let's talk first about private label, the closed loop gift cards with retailer brands on them. They've always been popular with fraudsters, but they especially just, it kind of goes in, it's cyclical, right? So sometimes it's a little bit Mm -hmm. more popular than less, et cetera. But I feel like we're on a high note right now for various reasons. What type of fraud tactics are most popular when targeting branded gift cards online? Yeah. So the cyclical nature of fraud is always an interesting one, right? And and it's usually fraudsters are flowing like water. 
as with any other illicit activity, and they go to the point of least resistance. Mm. For private labels, they're in, from the way I've kind of mapped it out in my head, they're on the last run of the cycle, if you will, right? So we're seeing a lot of things on the private labels that we saw five, six years ago on the financial cards and 10 years ago on the money transfer. So if you back up to 2011, 2012, and the things that were going on with your money transfers at the time, so Western Union-esque style transfers, those started popping up on our financial gift cards really about as quick as they got shut down on those transfer sites, right? Now, with that being largely shut down, or at least much more difficult to perform on the financial gift cards, they started moving towards the third parties. And what it usually just comes down to is following some basic AML policies and tracking what users are doing with your products. And is it an intended use case? When the fraud starts to rear its head, it's usually going to be reported directly to the processor. And that's one of the things that makes it difficult to pinpoint. The thing that we stress to our partners and to the processors that we deal with and to the brands that we deal with is don't think just because you're not the one paying for it that it's not your problem. If I'm selling your gift card on my website and your gift card is highly likely to be used for fraud because you have no AML controls and thus I can just cash it out without much of an issue, that's going to significantly increase the risk of your product on my site and thus your approval rates are going to be affected. Right. Because fraudsters are going to be pounding that thing. And where there are more fraudsters, there are in essence going to be more legitimate customers caught up in the nets. So it's really important for the processors to understand their role in the ecosystem. One of the big things that we see right now from a digital perspective are really website attacks. So people pounding card balance checks and really the easiest way to prevent that. The number one flaw that we see in most partners that we've consulted with there is you really need to make sure you have a binary response on your card holder website. When I plug in a couple of numbers and it's wrong, and if you're telling me what's wrong, the fraudsters know that and they're going to very quickly start pumping through there and looking for cards that are right. So that's by far the number one vulnerability we find on most people's sites. And that's one that honestly we have had issues with in the past as well. It's something that you learn as with anything in fraud, you learn it trial by fire. And then we do our best to spread the word and keep people from letting that fire ignite. So. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and to try to contain the fire as much as possible for sure. And So there's a couple of things I want to dive in there. I mean, one is when you're talking about like checking card balances online, Mm -hmm. I know there are a lot of bots or scripted attacks. And I think Mm -hmm. this is what you're talking about that will do card cracking or do balance checks, right? So I can certainly take a stab at defining card cracking, but would you mind? I'm sure you talk about this list more than I do. I mean, it's it's very similar to yeah. Same as credit card numbers, but yeah, basically, yeah, it's most cards, whether it's a financial card or a private label card, they work on the same basic concept, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for people to understand that it really is just security through obscurity. There are a set number of combinations that are accurate and will lead you to a certain account. And there are a bunch of theoretically a lot more combinations that will lead you to a black hole. The objective is not to make it super simple for me to just set up a bot to run those numbers because with how processing power has evolved over the past decade, it's not that expensive to run large volumes Mm -hmm. through an online website. And it's important that people, fraud fighters especially, understand that lowering barrier and that it continues to get lower and it will continue to get lower. Yes. And thus, our protections and our frictions have to be risen up. It's usually a product that business and marketing wanted to make it seamless. And why can't we tell the customer they fat fingered their security code? Why can't we just tell them they did that? It's like, because now they know that everything else was right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Right. So instead of saying, yes, this card exists or providing an actual balance as soon mm-hmm. as they put in a card number, what do you recommend instead to prevent the card cracking? Yeah. So ideally it should be a full match combination, right? So you should mm-hmm. have the right card number. You should have the right security code. If you've got an expiration date in the mix, this expiration date needs to be right. If any one of those three things are wrong, or if you've got more security, then you know that's great. But if any of them are wrong, you say no, just, right. just that. So, And that would work on those that are going through the authorization process and that have an expiration date. But when I'm talking about mm-hmm. thinking about private label cards, they don't really yeah, have Yeah, a lot of them don't have an expiration date, date right? on so, them. Yep. Right. So what would Emergent do then to prevent that not allow automatic balance inquiries without logging into an account? Or I mean, I yeah, not necessarily. Yeah, no, that's the, not necessarily. So they should still have a PIN number associated mm, with them. Right. Yes. So and I think a lot of private labels even do four digits. So definitely making sure that, that PIN number is involved in the balance check process and not just a straight card number. Got it. OK, nope, that makes perfect sense. And I know that that is huge also for IVR systems as well. I mean. Yep. They can just pay somebody very little in a third world country, unfortunately, to just keep t- 
typing in different numbers. They don't know if that Mm -hmm. number exists or not until they get, ooh, there's a balance on this one. And then they may transfer all of those to one big amount of a card or resell them all together. And that can be huge liability. And also all of those pings by those bots checking for account balances are also costing your company as well in various ways. So it's all, yeah, it's definitely nothing's ever one-to-one. It's always thinking about all of the things, which those of us who are in front love that. Um, (laughs) that Again, I mean, yeah, Jared and I really thought that we we had a theory that you actually had the thought at first, like wonder how many people that are professional fraud fighters have ADD, especially those of us, I think in leadership, like strategy and I think less so about analysts and those of us that are like in strategy or product management, things like that. I'm very curious <laughs> to know that answer too, because I know, I know I can think of several of us that are. I look um, forward to the poll answers. I, so. yes, yes. So I am going to be doing a LinkedIn poll either before or after this comes out. I'm not sure, but I, yeah, I'm really curious about it too. And hopefully we'll get some good engagement. But, and one other thing I want to go back on that, your answer to that question is interestingly enough, a lot of my audience doesn't know what basic AML practices are because yeah. they worked on the e-com side and they haven't had to have anti-money laundering regulations unless they're in a marketplace or a fintech. And actually there is a, this has come up on the retailer call I host a couple of times in the last few months where more than one retailer says, hey, our processor asked us to name an AML officer. So they just made it me, (laughs) but I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like are there any basics, like especially around our gift cards and in both cases (laughs) said this, these are very large companies that are straight e-commerce. So they wouldn't necessarily have to have AML compliance. However, because their gift cards are being used as currency, because there's a penny on the dollar ratio in a resale market, like it is really being hit. So I'm not asking you to like teach an AML course or anything like that. But when you say the basics of AML, what, what do you mean there? So first, let, let me put on this five-hour video that you can watch and have your own audit to teach you about AML. Now, so I think AML policies are one of those things that there's the legal definition that fintechs and banks and folks like Incom and anybody's bank is going to have to follow, right? There's the red flag laws and kind of those basic concepts. But really and truly, from a fraud perspective, if you've been doing fraud for a while, AML is going to come pretty naturally for you because what it really boils down to is call out the weird stuff. And if you can't explain it, you probably shouldn't be letting it happen. And you at least need to keep an eye on it. So the way I break it down to my analyst is because we're not on the compliance side, we're on the fraud side. So we have an entire compliance team that handles our actual AML, like legal responsibility monitoring. And on the fraud side, we also have AML responsibilities, especially to identify and report and things of that nature. But it also goes, we kind of take it a step above that and say, in addition to our legal responsibilities, we've also got to take it from a product protection perspective and from a reputational protection perspective and just look at how our cards are being used, knowing that a lot of them are anonymous and look for ways that we can break through that anonymity that even if we don't know the name of the person on the other end of the transaction, we can look for ways to associate these transactions with other transactions and to know how funds are converging on our platform and when weird stuff is happening, which is a word that for those outside of the fraud world, that Word can mean a lot of things, but, you know, most of us know what the word weird means, yep. right? It, it's, a, it's really <laughs> it's hard to conceptualize, but you look for weird stuff. And when you see yep. weird, you call out weird. And if you can't explain it, you can't say it's fraud, you at least watch it, right? Is really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And if you see weird continue to grow, that's a red flag. If it kind of bubbles up and disappears, it was probably fine. But it's very rare that you see misuse of a product continue to grow and it turn out to be a good thing. So, yeah, yeah. No, makes perfect sense. I just want to make sure because I think sometimes fraud fighters were like, oh, AML is a compliance thing, but you're absolutely right. There's some applicability in the operational piece of fraud prevention that where we start to see Yeah, and it behooves us to make sure that we pay attention to the money laundering because if you allow money laundering to exist on your product, you will have fraud. It's just... Mm-hmm. How the two go hand in hand. Can you have money laundering without fraud? Yes. But fraud's going to be there pretty quick because fraudsters need to launder money just like anybody else. Yeah. So 
Right. Yeah. And they, it's not like they live by a code, right? I'm only going to launder money, but I'm not going to steal it. <laughs> I'm only going to launder honest money. Like, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. If you're only laundering honest money, then there's no point to launder it. <laughs> just saying, right? Yeah. And absolutely true. So then just talking a little step further about private label closed loop gift cards nope. for retailers. I mean, Obviously, like we both said, because it's cyclical, we are seeing an uptick in gift cards, whereas for a few years it was there, but it wasn't a huge focus. So, you know, what are some of the best practices? And I know a lot of merchants right now are seeing account takeover to buy gift cards or they're seeing card cracking and taking over gift card balances and sealing it. That's kind of what's normal or just new account fraud. For part of your role, you work with many large retailers and big and small, like all sizes on these issues. So what are some of the best practices beyond the not having a binary results when checking cards? I think that's brilliant. What are some of the other best practices that you cards from being purchased with stolen account credentials and stolen payment? Yeah. So I think one of the big ones, especially when it comes to online sales of e-gift cards. If you're going to store payment on file, which is great, we all love the convenience of just log in and have our credit card right there. But you've got to also understand the risk of the product that you're selling. And I mean, gift cards are not super risky. And honestly, if you do it right, they're really not that risky at all. They're definitely riskier than a pair of socks, but it's not like you have to, it's not like 5% fraud rates should be expected because mm. if they get up, which some people have had them get up there, but that's because they were not paying attention to it. If you're going to have a card stored on file, you really need to be requiring the CVV2 on just about every time they purchase a transaction. It needs to be an exception to not require the CVV2 rather than require the CVV2, right? So if if I'm logging in from a known device and my behavior's looking stellar and there's nothing weird and I usually buy gift cards, especially on a recurring basis, and those are situations where maybe you can let it slide occasionally. But if I don't usually buy gift cards, and especially if I'm on a new device, I'm like, you should really be requiring CVV2. And you can try to think about it, just kind of raising the barrier of entry for the fraudster that attacks you. Yep. While it's not impossible for me to get a credit card and a CVV2, nor is it impossible for me to get a login with a password to someone's merchant account where that card stored on file. Getting those two together is yes. a much higher burden. It is. Especially if you're used to not necessarily requiring CVV2, it makes it harder for malware and such to get that elsewhere and through yep. other transactions. But having those two together is a much higher burden to get past. Plus, you've got more protection from a chargeback pushback perspective, right? If I can show that you both logged into your user account and you provided CVV2 and you passed AVS and you did your devices normal, then all of a sudden your chargeback representment rates should be pretty decent. So in just kind of thinking through it from that perspective is really important. Some of the other things I think to consider as well are just basic behavioral analytics are becoming extremely important, right? So I think as we've seen this shift of the fraudsters, the way that they're attacking, the way they're getting their data, we're starting to see this rise of needing behavioral analytics, needing to be able to look at session information and how things are playing out over the course of the purchase transaction. So I think those two things are both really important. Also moving beyond just the e-commerce side, you know, Mm -hmm. I think kind of the step back, I think one thing worth talking about as well for, for private labels is they've been experiencing heightened rates of not to epidemic levels, but we're seeing a lot more package tampering happening in the stores. So I think it's important for the gift card teams at retailers to make sure that their in-store loss prevention is in sync with the value of those gift cards and that people will try to attack them and try to tamper with the physical cards that are in their store on their J-hooks to try and steal money that way. Hmm. as well as phone verbal attacks over the phone to store employees as well as their customers to essentially scam people into activating gift cards and just giving them out for free. So, Well, and then talking about in-store a little bit, even though I primarily focus on e-commerce, but there are a lot of retailers that also have in-store that they have some areas about. And we've also talked about it on previous episodes of the podcast too. There's a lot more attempts or just scams of victim-assisted, victim-assisted scams targeting gift cards. And those are basically what we mean, if nobody understands that term, the examples, right? Someone calls, a lot of times the examples given are elderly people who are called and told that the IRS needs them to pay them immediately in four or $500 gift cards to a specific retailer. And if they don't do that, they're going to go to jail or, you know, whatever that, that's what I mean by victim assisted, right? The victim is involved in the transaction and therefore there's not a lot of liability that the victim can put on anyone else. It's not an online transaction. The victim walked into the store. They use their own card, even if the merchant said, 
hey, are you buying this for someone you know? Like the victim's probably been coached at that point to say, to not think about it and said this before, but like it's, I don't think that a victim blaming is very productive. So it's not going to actually solve the problem. Instead, we need to look at how to fix things. So I know you have worked really hard on this with several big name yep. retailers and we could have an entire conversation just about this, but <laughs> what are some of the best practices that you recommend for retailers to protect their branded gift cards from, or just like to yeah, targeting the elderly or anyone else, like what are some things you've learned and observed in working with them? Yeah. So I still remember it was probably 20, probably 2011, I think when we got our first, mm. the first notable report of a victim assisted scam on one of our former products back then and got a call from the call center manager and he was like, Hey, yeah. So we got this customer calling and said they're trying to buy a car on eBay and said he never got the car and wants to try to figure out. So we took it in and we started digging it out. And yeah, sure enough, the number one victim is this a scam back in the early 2010s was in fact, eBay, buying oh, cars on yeah. eBay mm-hmm. and wasn't really eBay. So it was a fake eBay site, or if it was on eBay, it was a fake listing on eBay and they were never charging through eBay. Right. So you weren't right. So, and they were really slick in how they worked out their emails and everything else. And it's kind of like, if you look at the phishing training you get now at most companies and it's like, you got to pay attention to the, the domain. And it's, if it's like eBay one, five, seven, three, five at or support at gmail.com. It's like, that's not actually eBay, but customers are falling for this hand or fist and gift cards were not the primary method at the time, but they were starting to get used. It was primarily the money transfers that were being used to facilitate that, especially because they had international transfers. But yeah, so I mean, fast forward to today, gift cards are still definitely in the scope. I would still say, I don't think gift cards are the number one way that people are using to transfer the funds, Mm. at least not our gift cards, I would say. The thing that we have focused on predominantly is because it's an issue that you'll never really be able to eradicate in its entirety, right? Mm -hmm. So the approach that we took on it was, What we're not going to stand for is someone losing their life savings through a scam on our products. Like that's unacceptable. And I think that's where the victim blaming piece is completely unacceptable. At the point as a fraud professional that you're looking at a situation and you are feeling really bad for the person on the other line, something's wrong. That's when you've got to take action, which is exactly what Incom's done over the past 10 years. We've built numerous tools out to help our retailers identify when high-risk transactions are taking place. We've got operations set up where we contact our retailers directly to try and get the cashier on the line to say like, hey, yeah, what's going on with this customer? Hmm. What's like the sales shut off? We had to, we had to suspend the sale basically. But in we real figure time. out what's going on in real time. Yep. Well, so yeah. we can't stop what was already activated, but we right. can stop it from getting too bad, right? Because I feel a lot less Dave Ramsey has a coin phrase called the stupid tax, right? Which <laughs> from a personal finance perspective is when you take out a high interest rate loan or something and you make a stupid decision. Right. Our objective has always been to keep it down to the stupid tax level so we can mm. write it off as a stupid tax. If somebody loses 500 bucks to a scam, that's a lot easier to kind of get over than someone losing fifteen, twenty thousand dollars mm. in one go. So to that point, you're never going to 100 percent eliminate all of it, especially in a brick and mortar facility. But if you can keep those numbers low enough to where the per incident pain is under a thousand dollars, then often what we found is the fraudsters end up moving on anyway. They don't target the product in the first place because they can't get enough money out of it. They're looking to move ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Right. So that's really our focus has been just to kind of keep that as narrow as possible. And then from there, from a, a front end activation perspective, it's feasible to keep those numbers down. But in order to get kind of better, you need a more holistic approach, including mm-hmm. brand and processor influence on how they're processing the cards, getting those money laundering systems set up. What we found on our products is when the scams take place, you can usually see that convergence of funds coming mm-hmm. from many places and going into singular locations. Fraudsters, are, as we all know, they're really smart. They're really innovative. They're really lazy. They, they don't like setting up a thousand processes. To do. I was going to say that so, they, yeah, they stick to their habits, but yes. They stick to their habits because they're Also lazy. very true. Yeah, yeah, 100%, right? Yeah, so, it's because they're and lazy. And they're going to get lazy at some point in the process. And that's usually what we see is this that funds out piece. Right. Yeah. And if they can be lazy and not get caught, they'll just keep they doing the be. same thing over and over exactly. again, which is why it's so important to continually try to not ever have said it and forget it, right? Especially on these types of things. I know that like when it comes to these things, 
There are several retailers I know, a couple that I keep meaning to introduce you to specifically (laughs) offline, but they're often really perplexed on how to balance like customer education with customer experience in the stores. And they've tried the POS prompts. They've tried the signs next to the kiosk. They've tried all those things. Or the scammers are just making sure that they get to the person first and say, they might tell you that there are scams, but this isn't that. I know that you've done some interesting research on how the gift cards are actually like spent or monetized. What that piece looks like when they're redeemed. And so maybe if you're able to stop the redemption process from being easy, then they're not going to target that one specific company. Is that something you'd recommend for Merchant Silhouette or what other advice would you have for them that just feel really overwhelmed with solving this problem? And the business, quite frankly, will often say, this isn't our money. Are we going to get a charge back? Okay, well then don't care. And that obviously is bad for customer experience, (laughs) brand trust, as well as just like horrible karma. I don't care if somebody's grandparent, you know, lost their life savings. It's not our money. Like that. You'd be surprised how many people have that approach. So unfortunately it um, wouldn't be. That's the problem. I think that's one of those areas where we had a few in the company at the time that had that approach to it. Mm -hmm. And luckily they were not the prevailing voices in are largely no longer around. So um, I can tell you there are a lot of people in the fraud side of some of these very big brand retailers that they feel like they're the only ones in the company who are advocating for caring about this. That doesn't mean they are, but that's how they feel. Yeah. And a lot of times it can definitely feel that way. Mm -hmm. And that's where kind of making the case of the lack of profitability also comes into play, right? Where when these are full instant drains that are not being utilized in an appropriate manner, they're likely, typically what we end up finding out is they're going into highly fensible products if mm-hmm. they're redeeming it in store. Yep. So you're not making margins on the gift card sales. You're not making the upsells, right? All the things that gift cards mm. are used or justified through is predominantly things like upsell and being put back into high margin products, right? So they're used more often for the accessory to the gaming system more so than the gaming system. When it's fraudulent, it's oftentimes the gaming system itself. And it's yeah. a bunch of gift cards being used to buy five or six or eight different of the same gaming system that the store's not making that much money on because they're mm. not buying the controller. They're not buying game. They're not buying any of the other stuff that a normal user would buy. So that's definitely one argument that can be used. Obviously, every merchant's got to do their own analytics on exactly what it is. But right. that's often what we see is that they're usually used for low margin products and it yes. ends up eating into the profitability of the product itself. From there, though, and yeah, so and then some of the other things that can be watched for as far as identifying the fraud itself, like I talked about before, there's usually a convergence of these funds. So what you know, there's been press releases in the past of major merchants who have broken up rings of scammers that I think are great case studies for people to look into. You've also got to kind of put yourself in the psychology of the victim. And, you know, mm-hmm. how they're feeling at the time when it comes to in-store processes. We definitely suggest that retailers train their front line. I remember, you know, when I was way back in the heyday when I worked retail. The first two days I was sitting there watching monotonous videos of how to do your job, right? Right. In those monotonous videos, you need to have a segment on how to talk to customers about potential scams. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's That's a benefit right. to that as well. A, a major retailer just made headlines. I can't remember exactly where it was, but they just made headlines because someone's elderly parent was getting scammed and it was shut down by a clerk at the store and the manager at the store. And yeah. they got positive headlines out of it. So I, I think society is ready to support and to give some accolades to the retailers to push that. But when you're talking to these victims, understanding their mindset and that they may not be that open to your suggestion that it's a scam, right? right. So, you know, whether it's a greed-based scam. kind of been brainwashed a little bit, right? They really have, yeah. right? And so the greed-based scams can a lot of times be the most aggressive. Those are the ones where people are getting something out of the end of the transaction, right? Folks buying the car, buying the boat, whatever the case may be, they're getting a heck of a deal and you're taking that deal away from them. They can be mm. some of the most combative and the hardest to deal with. And a lot of times those, it, it's much easier to mentally kind of write them off as we, I tried, go on about your life, try to buy that boat, don't complain when it doesn't show up. Right. But then the the fear-based scams Mm -hmm. are the ones where it's also usually the easiest to kind of pick off and understand what's going on. They're more likely to kind of tell you and open up a little bit. The fraudsters probably got them on the phone still. So they're probably going through the checkout line on the phone. But then don't be afraid just to shut the sale down and say like, sorry, we can only do this. Some of our retailers have even gone to the extent of saying like, this is just a standard policy. Like you even sell enough gift cards at high volumes to warrant letting anyone do it. Right. So that's not a policy that we personally prefer, right? Because I mean, we like to sell gift cards, but in some circumstances and some stores, that's just the way to go. And then you handle the other ones. You handle the ones that want to go above that in an exception basis. Maybe you need the store manager to be involved in the transaction. Maybe you need to go a little bit higher on the escalation tier because it is a higher dollar sale and you need to be a little bit safer. So 
And to your point, oftentimes when we're thinking about fraud strategy and things like that, you said this a little bit ago, and it's so true that we're often looking at how can just not be worth it for the fraudster, right? How can we get to the point where it's like, oh, it's more expensive, right? And so your example was, it's much harder for them to get the details and the credit card note, you know, the CVV and all that. And same with this type of thing too, as far as like, if you have a policy that says, we only allow X amount of dollars at one store. Now that person on the other end of the phone has to look to this victim to go to five different stores around their town. Like that can be one example The business often will say, well, what about the good customers? No, I've looked through the data and there's not any cases where we've had anyone else buy. For example, there's a specialty retailer a few years ago when this was first starting to become a thing that told me that they had one woman come in and buy 125, $500 gift cards. That it's a specialty retailer. Yeah. There needs to be a reason, right? And that is huge loss. So if someone's going to do that for a legitimate way, like if a company wants to do that, right. Mm -hmm. And they want to give everybody, you know, $500 worth of whatever, right. Makeup, coffee, hair care, whatever it is, shoes, whatever. Then they can go through the wholesale route and get like, you know, not, not that they get a huge discount, but they can go through the corporate route. They can go through the B2B route and they should, because then they can at least get benefits and Whatever, you know, right off. Yeah, and also makes the- it a bit stickier, right? Because I mean, yes. if you sign them up on your in, as oh, a yeah. customer, then they're more likely to come back as well. <laughs> so there's there's definitely good reasons to push that route. And there's also just, I will say, it, not every merchant's made the same, right? So Yeah, 100%. You know, oh, yeah, 100%. Right? You've said many times in your former podcast, and we'll just reiterate right now, like every retailer's different and everyone requires a unique touch, which is why everyone has their own fraud department. There are retailers that we work with that make a regular habit of selling very large ticket gift card sales. Mm-hmm to individuals who just walk up in the store, but they also do it properly, right? So it's mm. not just a, hey, anonymous person. Yeah, give me your credit card. Here's, you know, $10,000 worth of gift cards. Right. They've got processes set up much in line with those kind of that corporate sign up style, even mm-hmm. if it's an individual where you sign up to get the gift cards, you get your name on file, you go through a couple of questions and most of them have some basic scam questions in there. Like, right. hey, is anybody trying to, is anybody asking you to do this? So you're mm. trying to give these to somebody specific? Like, what's the situation here? So mm-hmm. I meant to ask you this before we recorded. I mean, we only had an hour and a half to talk before, so I don't know why <laughs> I forgot. But I know you do listen to the podcast sometimes and that always humbles me. I mean, everyone who listens, I'm like, I hope you learned something, especially like people that I look <laughs> up to. But I don't know if you listened to my most recent episode with Gil Rosenthal, where he talked about solving some of these issues with a product type approach, right? Like his whole thing was, and I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but like, I thought he had some really good ideas around Mm -hmm. like, you're going to buy a pack of cigarettes or beer. Like you have to go to a special aisle or you need to do this or that, or it needs to be behind the counter or different things like that. And I'm sure you've had a lot of those conversations internally. And so I know that if anyone has thought of that already, it's probably you and and (laughs) tried to take it up the flagpole and it hasn't. But what would be the concerns for like an industry-wide, not an income specific, Mm -hmm. not a retailer specific, but industry-wide. Now we recognize that gift cards are like cash. They're being used for nefarious purposes, organized crime, all kinds of other stuff, human trafficking, et cetera. If I want Sudafed because I have a cold, I've got to go show my driver's license and all that. Like why hasn't that happened from just a high level? Yeah. So I think a lot of that comes down to customer experience, right? So there's a lot of friction involved with those different processes. And I mean, I think as we can both agree, a certain amount of friction is required and necessary a lot of times. I do think that there is more that can be done from an industry perspective. The hard part is with any part of the payment process, one of the challenges that we at Income continues to try to overcome is how to take this decentralized payment ecosystem and bring it a bit more control to it, right? Bring a bit more centralization to it, essentially. And that's one of the problems is you've got a retailer who's collecting the payment. They know who the customer is. Sometimes, you know, maybe they have a loyalty program. They know who the customer is. They collect the payment of the income in the situation doesn't know anything about the payment, right? We rarely even know how they got it activated. And it's something that we've wanted to kind of get past and kind of break into a bit more, getting a bit more data from our front end merchants, but they've got their own problems with doing that because you've got these separate kind of firewalled systems, if you will, right? Because you've got legacy on one side, you've got upgrades on the other side. And as with anything, you get this litany of different integration points and it's very tech heavy to make any real changes of any integration, any deep integrations from that perspective. And then moving from there, you get to us, you activate the card and then that goes off. If we process it, it's great. 
right? We can do a lot of synergies there. But if we're not processing it, if we're sending it off to one of the other processors, then we're out of it at that point. So a lot of the a lot of the problem with the ecosystem really comes down to just limited views. And it's a reliance on each person in the ecosystem to do their due diligence and to do their job, which is ironically one of the reasons we see very wild, like wildly varying fraud rates on different products and sometimes within the same sphere of type of product, right? So you can have two digital content brands that act very differently from a fraud perspective. They get targeted differently. They get misused differently. And a lot of that comes down to who they're processing with, how they're running their AML from a brand perspective, how they Mm. consider their product, what they let their product be done with. When you step into the digital content world, you really get into international issues because all of a sudden there is no physical nexus at any point in time. Right. Right. There's no need for me to ever step foot in the U.S. If you've got a card that only redeems for physical products, that's a very different setup from a brand that's even allows digital products. Right. Right. A hundred and ten percent. And you know, I think you have such a good point there. I'd also be so curious. And these are the kinds of things that we don't talk about publicly. But you know, I'd also be curious. Like I know I've talked to merchants where their gift card rates are they're crazy. Where like I'll talk to two retailers that are fairly similar and their fraud, one might have really high fraud rates, the other mm-hmm. one doesn't. But then on top of that, I have legitimately talked to merchants who have a 30% decline rate by their fraud provider. That means that their fraud provider has canceled 30% of the orders on gift cards. That especially comes into play, not on all of them, but especially when the fraud provider takes the liability for chargebacks, right? Because they see gift cards as high risk. They don't have the relationship with the customer. They're just looking at the pieces of the puzzle that they see and they're terrified of these. So they cancel so many. And because they're so wildly different, there's two different factors, right? There's the one you talked about, how different retailers have different fraud focuses and they may not be targeted in the same way. And so, of course, one's going to have a higher fraud rate, one's going to have a lower rate. But then you have the added complexity of not all fraud providers are the same and not all of them understand gift cards. And a lot of them, if it's gift cards, they're going to be a lot more conservative than they are if it's a physical good, whether that really needs to happen or not. So what do you suggest there? It's not like I would ask you what rate should people have because they're going to be different (laughs) for lots of reasons. But like, what's a good way to audit that or to be able to know, okay, you know what? Yeah, we have a 5% fraud rate, but we know we've done everything we can. We know we're using the right provider. We have a 12% decline rate, but we know those really are like having a little more confidence in those percentages is a challenge. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think there's probably two answers to that, depending on who you are, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have your fraud problem under control, your actual chargeback, problem Mm. under control, I would suggest some A-B testing, right? So take a portion of your population and just let it through. Mm. Make sure it's a small percentage. right? right? You don't don't want to let enough through that it allows fraudsters to scale because that's always bad juju. And that's really a thing for everyone out there is to keep in mind that when it comes to gift card fraud, it's as long as you don't let it scale, it is really not that bad. Mm, Um, You've got to watch out for the scales though, because those are the ones that will whack you when it comes to digital gift cards is if you're not watching, if your velocities are not set up right and you let someone do something and then they can just go to town, that's when, Mm, mm -hmm. that's when the loss is happening. So, I mean, there's retailers that'll run it like no fraud for most of the time. And then when they do have fraud, it's like way up there. Oh, (laughs) yeah. It's it's like zero to hero overnight. So like um, thousands of percentage points. Yeah. 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 So especially um, with the bots and the higher capacity, et cetera. Yeah. Yep. So if you can afford to do an A-B test, that's probably the most statistically accurate way to do it. Right. Mm Because that gives you a true 100 percent accurate, statistically accurate right. assessment of the outcome mm-hmm. that you can look at. And like, if you didn't get a chargeback, then at least the TC40 or safe report, then right. you're fine. It was not. Now, if you already have a chargeback issue and you're fighting that and you're trying to get those rates down, you can't afford to run and maybe you can't afford to let fraud right. through, that's when the manual review really comes into play. We make a habit on my team of doing a pretty constant QA of our system and our analyst mm. decisions and mm-hmm. looking at pretty much everything. So one of the senior analysts that has a near 100% QA rate, if you will, the one that kind of decides what's right or wrong, right. will go through a selection of the decisions and say like, hey, this was right, this was right, this was wrong, like this is a fine, this order's fine, it should have been approved. And even if you're on a 100% automated system, you should be QAing that system on a very regular basis. Artificial intelligence is great, but it's still artificial. So so many quotes. I tell you, I'm like, you've got that girl 
country boy simplifying everything. It's like I want to start putting up memes of Jared's quotes all over the place, but it's so true, right? Like artificial indulgence is still artificial and that kind of can sometimes cancel out the intelligence part. Well, and especially, I mean, we were talking about earlier before recording too, like every provider is so different and their definition of machine learning can vary from a report at the end of the month and people in overseas who are crunching the numbers and that's why there's a 20 minute wiggle time for this automated solution that is secret sauce and you're not allowed to know how they got there. All the way to every merchant, every vertical using the same machine learning model to having a custom model per merchant. Like it really, that varies that much within machine learning. And so all of those things, it really is important to be able to QA those decisions, both the manual review as well as the automated. And to that point, I think the difference in modeling is really important to call out, right? If you're running your gift cards on the same model that's decisioning your normal retail business, it's probably why you're getting 30% rejects, right? It's it's not going to turn out very well. So it may well, work and, for the most part. Yeah. And it's not to say that you cannot use that model as part of your decision, yep. but you do have to understand that gift cards are very different. I mean, most retailers are also running different models for their high risk physical goods than they yes. do for low risk physical goods, right? I mean, if someone's they buying should. a pair of socks, I don't like, why am I going to decline them for buying a pair of socks, right? So obviously you're going to take a much lighter touch on that type of a transaction versus something that's easily resold or something that's a gift card, for instance. So, And you are a hundred percent right. The situations, the merchants that I talk to that have really high False positives. I mean, because if you have a 30% decline rate on anything, you have a lot of false positives. Or a lot of fraud. One or the or other. right. <laughs> but you would see that spike, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. you, it would look differently. Yes. Because also, you also have high chargebacks. It's like, okay, yep. clearly the system isn't doing right. And the merchants I'm thinking of right now that have had those issues, they use providers that use the same, and they'll tell you that the the provider will tell you that they don't. But when you understand how that provider works, they're applying the same cookie cutter to physical low risk physical goods as they are high risk physical goods as they are gift cards. However, what changes is their decision, like their their decision of risk because it's their money on the line. So they're using the same decisioning. And so this is a higher number than we would feel comfortable with for we'll use your pair of socks. So we really don't feel comfortable with this for a gift card, but gift card behavior is different and gift card pricing is different per retailer as well as. And the available data points are different. Yeah, right, which that's I think is another point. thing. So mm-hmm. if you deliver digital cards through SMS and versus you deliver mm-hmm. them through email, those are two very different risk factors. I mean, you screen phone numbers very differently from the way you screen emails. Uh, the vendor selection on which one you call is going to likely change wildly because I've right. yet to meet anyone that does emails and phones the best. So it's just wait for your phone to ring. It already does. It already does. I know. But yeah, so I I think differences in models is definitely a a big one that Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of people fall for is, you know, to your point, you can't just go with a different score like, well, if it's a pair of socks, I'll take anything. If it's a zero to a hundred, I'll take anything that's 95 and below is is fine. But if it's a gift card, then, you know, we're going to stop at 70. Then that doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly right. Not surprising. I still had a few other questions I was going to ask you on another topic, (laughs) but I am hopeful that the last few hours not scared you away and you want to come back to Fraudology another time and that your comms team continues to give us their blessing. We really appreciate them for that. (laughs) And thank you just so much for your time. And I will include your link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes if anyone wants to get in touch with you. I always learn something when I talk with you and I know other people will as well. So thanks again. It's a lot of fun. Appreciate being here. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.